very special reading today. Corinthians 1. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith. Hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We will probably, that was a sermon, all right, go home. We will probably end up censored on YouTube um, for using a Beatles song, but we'll just have to let it be, let it be. If the word loves is ignored in that Beatles song, 102 times they say, all you need is love. And then it ends by repeating, love is all you need, love is all you need, love is all you need. 
And friends, they're, he's not, or they're not, but the Beatles could be quoting the Apostle Paul from today's passage. Love is all you need. Because the passage that Sue just read for us from 1 Corinthians 13 is a poetic masterpiece about love. I mean, this is really the Apostle Paul at his most profound, at his most eloquent. One commentator calls this one of the greatly loved passages in the New Testament. We love this passage about love. I mean, seriously, how many weddings have you been to that this has not been read? Probably more it's been read at than not. And while 1 Corinthians 13 does speak to the romantic love and to the marriage love in that relationship, what the Apostle Paul is writing about here today is not specifically about love within the context of marriage, but love within the context of the church. And as we continue our study through this letter of 1 Corinthians, we remember that this section of the litter, lit, the litter, this section of the letter was written in response to questions that the Corinthians had sent to Paul in a letter of their own. And while we're not certain of the exact question that they were asking him, what it seems is that their question centered on the practice of spiritual gifts within the church. And even more specifically, as we've already started to see, and we're really going to see as we move into next week, the issue was speaking in tongues or the ability to speak in languages unlearned or unknown to the speaker. You see, the Corinthians seemed really quite enamored with this gift. And things had gotten out of control. And it seems that those who could speak in tongues were judged as the, the more spiritual people. And those who couldn't were judged somehow as less spiritual and they were looked down on. So really everything that Paul writes in chapters 12 and 13 is setting the stage for next week when we start studying chapter 14, which is Paul correcting all that has gone wrong and is going wrong in the church in Corinth. Now, now to give us context, I had asked Sue to begin our reading by rereading the very end of chapter 12, which we studied last week to lead us into this discussion of chapter 13. And so you heard at the very beginning of chapter 12, I asked her to start by reading verse 27, which says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So the church is a body. And like we learned last week, friends, church is not something you go to. Church is something that we are. You do not go to church. You are the church. The church is a body. But the problem in Corinth is that the church wasn't functioning as a body. Instead, all the different parts of the body were judging, boasting, dividing against one another. And friends, when the parts of your own body don't cooperate with each other, we say you're sick. When the parts of the body aren't functioning, you're sick. And the church in Corinth is a body that has become sick. Because the parts are not functioning together the way they're supposed to. And so two weeks ago, we read that the, the Spirit of God within His people will manifest His presence and power by giving His people spiritual gifts used in service to Him and for His glory. And so two weeks ago, we read the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. It says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It says God's Spirit within you gives you gifts, and those gifts are not for you. God gives you gifts 
to give to others. God gives you gifts to serve the common good. God gives you gifts to build up the body. And the problem in Corinth is that God gave them gifts, and instead of building up the body, they were building themselves up. They were boasting about what they had or what they could do, and and they were judging those that couldn't do the things that they could. So what was supposed to bring unity was actually bringing division in the church in Corinth. And as such, we hear Paul repeatedly instruct the church that the gifts are to be for the common good. They're for the building of the body. In fact, next week, we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12, Paul writes, So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Paul goes, since you guys are so eager for these spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that don't just build you up, but that build others up. Because that's the purpose. The point is the building up of the church. And friends, how? How do we do that? How do we use the gifts for the common good? How do we function together so that the body is built up? Love is all you need. Love is all you need. In the midst of this great exposition on spiritual gifts in verse 12, and then the correction of the use of spiritual gifts in verse 14, verse 13 is is almost a digression, but with a purpose. Paul ends chapter 12 in chapter 12, verse 31, saying, And I will show you a still more excellent way. I will show you a still more excellent way to use the gifts. Because right now, Corinth, The way you're using the gifts is pathological. The body is sick. The body is not functioning the way it's supposed to be. It's become pathological. I'm going to show you this is the cure to what ails you. This is the more excellent way. Love is all you need. And Paul's point in chapter 13 is that without love, the gifts that the Corinthians are all clamoring over and all fighting for, they have little to no usefulness. He says love is the context for all the gifts. Love is all you need. And he opens chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, where he lists six of the spiritual gifts that he had discussed in chapter 12. He talks about tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, charity, and even martyrdom. And Paul goes, these are good gifts. But without love, they're nothing. And in fact, they're worse than nothing. They're a distraction. I mean, consider Paul's opening argument in verse 1. Verse 1, he says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, friends, a cymbal is an important part of music. And when it's played, it can contribute well to music. But it needs to fit in where it's supposed to fit in. Because on the other hand, if I just sat here and if I just kept doing this over and over, I mean, that's not using my gift. That's using my gift. It it doesn't consider how it's distracting and only drawing attention to itself. It, It drowns out and it distracts from the other instruments. Friends, no matter how gifted a cymbal player you might be, no matter how perfect your technique and how clear your tone, a cymbal played without love, without consideration of the rest of the music, is nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing. It's actually a distraction. Paul lists these gifts that he's been teaching out in chapter 12, and he says in chapter 13, he goes, no matter what gifts you have, and no matter how well you play them, 
if you don't have love, if you don't have consideration for the rest of the music, if you don't have consideration for the rest of the body, then you are nothing. So you need love. Love is the context for the gifts. So we should ask the question, well, what is love? What is love? I mean, we hear a lot about love today. We hear it sung about in our music. We hear it talked about all over the place. What is love? You know, there's right now a common meme that you might see on the internet, or it's actually on on bumper stickers, too. It says, people say hate is a strong word, but so is love, and people throw that around like it's nothing. Don't we do that? We, We kind of throw around the word love. We see it everywhere. We use it for everything. I mean, the same breath we go, I love a good cheeseburger. I love the Beatles. I love my favorite sweatshirt. I love New York. I love your outfit. I love my wife. I love God. We mean very different things, don't we? You see, there's one word in English, but when we come to Greek, which is what this letter was written in, there's actually many different words for love in the Greek language. For example, the word eros is where we get our English word erotic, and it has to do with romantic or sexual love. The word philos is friendship love, which, in fact, our city of Philadelphia literally is love brothers, brotherly love. It's the city of brotherly love. Storge is familial love, such as might exist between a parent and a child. But the word that Paul uses here in the Greek is a different word. It's a Greek word, agape. Agape has been described as unconditional love. It's a love that is purely for the benefit of the beloved. Paul also uses this same Greek word, agape, to describe God's love for us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he writes, But God shows his agape, his love for us, in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, agape love is like God's love towards us. God acted lovingly, not because we were family, not because we were his friends, not even because we were likable. Paul writes, when we were God's enemies, God acted lovingly. He sent his son to die in our place on the cross, bearing the just punishment for our sins, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God, brought into relationship with the God who loves us. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is God's unconditional love for us. He loved first. Not because we were lovable. Not because we were family. Not because we were his friends. He loved first because he chose to. He chose to love. And my friends, if you're here today or if you're watching the live stream and you do not know the love of God that has come to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, then please come and talk to me following the service. Email me because I would love to talk more to you and pray with you that you might know, that you might experience the love that God has shown us through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's an unconditional love. And Paul uses this same Greek word for love when he talks about the love we are supposed to have for one another. That kind of self-giving, unconditional love. We, the church, are to love the way God loved us. And Paul has to write today because the problem in Corinth was that was not how they were acting. 
They were seeking spiritual gifts for their own benefit, for the sake of pride and status and personal privilege. Paul writes that, you know, you may all be really gifted, which many of you are, but without love, your gifts are not really gifts. You have nothing. For if I have not love, I am nothing and I gain nothing. Love is all you need. And the other thing that we need to note about when we try to answer this question, well, what is love? Well, first we see the example that God has given us. God's love. But then what is love? Well, the description that we're about to look at, verses 4 through 8, the part that we really love to read at weddings, is, is a description of love. And friends, the thing that we most need to walk away with from that section, from this section that we're about to study, is that love is a verb. Love is a verb. Even though in English this may look like a bunch of adjectives, in Greek every one of these descriptors is a verb. It's an action word. Friends, love is a verb. When it speaks of loving here, it's talking about acting lovingly. It's not talking about feeling. In fact, it's saying regardless of your feelings, act lovingly. You see, what we have here is far more than our culture's shallow and fickle idea of falling in love. Friends, if love is something you can fall into, then love is something you can fall out of. And the truth is, our feelings are fickle, but love, true love, never fails. Feelings change, but love, true love, is a choice. Love is more than a feeling. Regardless of feelings, love is the choice to act in loving ways because love is a verb. Again, in the Romans 5 passage, it doesn't say that God kind of felt warmly to us, towards us. It says that God acted in love towards us. And in fact, while we were his enemies, while we were spitting in his face and running away from him, friends, he ran towards us. And Jesus came for us. God chose to show His love by coming and dying for us. Love is a verb. It's a choice. And what the Apostle Paul offers us here in verses 4 through 8 is a list of verbs. These are manifestations of love in the life of the church. And what do we learn from this list? Well, starting in verse 4, love is patient. Immediately, that disqualifies most of us. Now, again, this is not a question of how you feel. Are you a patient person? It's a question of how you choose to act towards other people. Because, friends, God chooses to be patient towards us. Again, if God is our example, consider what the Apostle Peter wrote about God in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord's not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Friends, the Lord doesn't act hastily towards us in judgment. He does not immediately treat us the way our sins deserve, praise God, because none of us would be here. The Lord is patient, and He desires our repentance. But how about you? How about you? Are you so patient with those that have hurt you? Are you patient with those who have much to learn, with those who continue to get it wrong? Are, are you patient with those that you feel owe you? Are you patient, what would your children say, 
you're patient? Would your spouse say you're patient? Love is patient. And it goes on, love is kind. And again, if we consider that God is our model and love is kind, uh, we need to look at other places where this same word kind might have been used, such as Luke 6, verse 35. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You see, if, if patience is holding back and not reacting to that person and being patient with them, kindness is actually actively moving towards them even when you don't want to. Uh, again, do you notice he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil? This isn't just about an act of kindness. This is about an attitude, a disposition towards others. Love chooses kindness towards the undeserving. Yes, she doesn't deserve it. No, he hasn't earned it. Yes, he, she has been ungrateful. Yes, he has done evil. But can you still choose to be kind? Because love is kind. And, and then verse 4, we, we have a series of them. Love does not envy or boast, and it is not arrogant. And friends, note what unites all three of those characteristics. Me. They're all about me. Envy, boasting, Prideful arrogance, me, me, me. In fact, the final phrase here in the Greek, literally, we've seen it before repeatedly used in this letter. The final phrase, if we literally translate it, is puffed up. Love is not puffed up. And we've heard Paul use this throughout 1 Corinthians. For example, 1 Corinthians 8.1, where he writes, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, knowledge can puff, up, puff us up just as we see the gifts and possessing different gifts had puffed people up in Corinth. People envied what others had. They boasted about what they did have. And people were puffed up. And Paul says, knowledge or gifts might puff you up, but love builds up. And it causes us to ask friends with what I have, with what I've received. Because as we talked about before, all is grace. Am I proud? Am I boastful? Am I looking down on others because of what I have? Am I puffed up? Or am I using what I've received to build up? Puffed up or build up? Verse 5 says, love's not rude. And the word used here refers to something socially unacceptable, shameful, and embarrassing. In other words, love doesn't act in a way that might purposefully shame or embarrass someone. Uh, now, have you ever told a joke, maybe at somebody else's expense? I mean, have you ever purposefully acted in a way that made someone feel ashamed or embarrassed? You know, there are those that are, are rude and they kind of use code phrases to justify their rudeness. You know, like, well, I'm just telling it like it is. Just a straight shooter. Just being honest. Just being authentic. It's how I really feel. No, you're actually being a jerk. Love considers how its actions will affect others and does not unnecessarily or callously cause another person harm. Love is not rude. In verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. I mean, the problem is that's how we enter into most of our relationships, I think especially of marriage. 
We enter into marriage thinking, well, what's in this for me? How can I benefit from this relationship? What can I get out of it? And the foundational experience uh, difference between the euphoric falling in love that we have at first, that our culture celebrates, and the choice to love that this passage calls for is the choice. The choice to say, I'm not going to insist on my own way. When Lee and I do premarital counseling with a couple, we always remind them marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. It's not a 50-50 proposition. Because otherwise you can say, well, I haven't gotten my 50%, so I'm done. It's your turn to step up to the plate. And you haven't given your full 50%, so I'm not going to. It's just not fair. Well, friends, love actually isn't fair. Love is about constantly trying to not be fair by out-loving and out-serving the other person. Love isn't about insisting on your own way, trying to get yours. Love is about giving. And how do you love? Verse 5 continues that love is not irritable. Literally, it's not easily provoked. Again, this isn't about feelings. This is about your chosen actions. Yes, he is irritating, but you still get to choose how you react. Yes, she can be annoying, yet you can choose not to be provoked. Because love is not easily provoked. Verse 5, love is not resentful. The, The Greek here literally means to take an inventory. This is an accounting word. This is to keep a log, to keep a list. Some English translations say love keeps no record of wrongs because, friends, you know it and I know it. There is a constant temptation in our relationships, especially in our marriages, to stockpile wrongs, sort of like a nation stockpiles weapons. We're waiting for an opportune time to use them to win the argument to prove our point. Now, friends, love doesn't necessarily forget But what love does is it surrenders the anger. It surrenders the right to retaliate. It surrenders the right to get even. It surrenders the right to pull it out so that later on you can use it to win a future battle. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Do you? Verse 6, love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices in truth. These are really two sides of the same coin. You know, love doesn't delight in evil, gossiping about misdeeds or celebrating someone's fall. Love only rejoices in what's good and true. And you can go, well, why? Why would, why would I want to delight in somebody else's misdeed or failure? Because there's always a temptation to make yourself look better. And to feel better about yourself. Well, at least I'm not like them. And make yourself look and feel better. We're self-seeking. We're self-justifying. We're puffing ourselves up. And we sometimes delight in when evil befalls another. Especially when we think that they got what they deserved. As if we know what that is. But love doesn't delight in evil. It only rejoices in what's good and what's true. And the final four descriptive terms here, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Most commentators agree that in the Greek, these four words are what's called a chiasm. And it's used to emphasize ideas by putting them in a symmetrical order. So the first and last items are paired, and the middle two items here are paired. So consider the the middle two items first. The middle two items, love believes all things and hopes all things. Friends, these are the same two qualities. 
that we find at the very end of this chapter. Chapter 13, verse 13 says, So now, faith, hope, there's those two words, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So what Paul writes right here is he says, Love always has faith and always has hope. And again, he's not speaking about our relationship to God. He's speaking about our relationship to one another. So he says, love always chooses to believe the best, to have faith in the other person. Love always chooses to hope the best for and of the other person. Love chooses to have faith in and hope for the other. In other words, love never gives up on the other person. And that's exactly what the first and last words of this list emphasize. The first one is love bears all things. The last is love endures all things. Friends, love can bear and endure all things, persevering under any circumstance. Love can always keep the faith and hope the best. Love endures and it bears with the other. Or at least it should. Because as someone has observed, we live in a nation of quitters. We live in a nation of quitters. Because sadly, too often, when the going gets tough, we get going. We leave our churches. We leave our marriages. We leave our relationships. We choose not to bear. We choose not to endure. We choose not to believe the best. We choose not to hope for the best. We walk away. But Paul says love doesn't. Love doesn't. Because rather, as verse 8 begins, love never ends. The the word here for love literally means to, to lose, to become inefficient, to fail, to fall away. Love never fails. It never falls away. It never gives up. You know, in October of 1941, in the midst of the the great struggle of World War II, British statesman Winston Churchill delivered a famous speech in which he charged, never give in, never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. And friends, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul says, love never, 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 never gives in. Love never yields to force. Love never yields to apparently overwhelming opposition. Love never fails. It never fails. And church, this is quite a list. And when those in Corinth heard it, and when we today in Camden hear it, it makes us ask, can I put my name into this list? Adam is patient and kind. Patrick does not envy or boast. Rich is not arrogant or rude. Dan does not insist on his own way. So on and so forth. And it's a convicting list because we realize how far we all have yet to go, don't we? But friends, there is a name that we can put into this description that works perfectly. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. So on and so forth. Friends, God is love. And Christ reveals the love of God to us. And the Spirit of God who is now at work within us, His people, is making us more loving. 
Friends, like we saw at the beginning of chapter 12, what's Paul talking about here? He says, I'm talking about spiritual. I'm talking about spiritual things. You remember that? And he says, when God's Spirit is amongst His people, He manifests Himself in different ways. Sometimes it's through gifts. But the most perfect manifestation of the Spirit's power amongst His people, church, is love. They will know we are Christians not by our gifts, They'll know we are Christians by our love. Paul writes to the church in Camden and the church in Corinth. He says, stop clamoring over and pursuing gifts, fighting over them, boasting against one another. Stop being divided. Pursue love because love is the most excellent way. And he closes in verses 8 through 13 by making the point that all these spiritual gifts, they're temporary. They're passing. Love alone endures. Only love never ends. You know, in verses 8 through 13, Paul picks up in the same gifts he was discussing in verses 1 through 3. And Paul writes that the spiritual gifts over which the Corinthians are right now fighting and boasting, he says, hey, listen, those are all temporary. Verse 8, as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. And Paul goes on to argue in verses 9 through 12, he goes, the spiritual gifts, for as good as they are, they're imperfect gifts given for an imperfect time. And Paul uses the illustration, he goes, hey, we're all like a bunch of children. We only understand in part, we only understand a little bit, and we only see dimly as in a mirror of hammered metal, because that's what they had in Corinth. The mirrors were hammered metal, which meant you could, you could see a reflection, but it was dim and, and distorted. So he says, we're like children and we only see dimly, so God has given us gifts to help us see more clearly for this time, to help us in our infancy, to help us see more clearly. But one day perfection will come. One day Jesus will return. And at that time we will see face to face what we only see dimly now. We will know perfectly and wholly what we only know in a limited way. So prophecy, tongues, and knowledge are right now given to us to help us until that time. But when Jesus returns, they're not necessary. We will be fully known even as we know. The gifts are only necessary till Jesus returns and perfection comes. And Paul's point is, all those gifts are passing away, but you know what's not going to pass away? Love. Even in eternity, there's going to be no prophecy, but there'll be love. In eternity, there will be no tongues, but there's going to be love. In eternity, there will be no need for miracles, healing, revelation, but there will be love. Love alone will remain. So Paul writes, hey, you in Corinth, hey, you in Camden, hey, all you churches in between, pursue love. Because love alone remains. Love endures. Love never fails. Love is all you need. And friends, we know from our lives and our experience, that under our own power, we don't love. And we can't love like we read here in 1 Corinthians 13. However, we can choose to let the Spirit of God within us make us love. Devotional writer Oswald Chambers wrote, It's quite true to say, I can't live a holy life, but you can decide to let Jesus make you holy. And in the same way, friends, I can't love but I can decide to let Jesus make me love. 
So this week, as you spend your time with the Lord, I invite you, read through this list in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8, and invite the Spirit of God to grow these qualities in you. Let the Spirit of God open your eyes as you go through your day to look for opportunities and then to pray for the strength to choose love. And may He help you choose those ways regardless of your feelings, but more than that, May the Spirit begin to change your feelings so that you truly do love. Because church, when all else has passed away, love alone remains. Love is what we need. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the truth. The truth that love is what we need. And that you are love and have revealed love perfectly to us in Jesus Christ. Now, Spirit, come and make us loving. Spirit, come and fill your church. Spirit, come and may we, your church, be known that we are Christians. Not because of our gifts, but because of your love amongst us and active through us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.